you and um, using as a springboard for the sermon, reading verses 32 through 30, excuse me, 22 through 35. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria and Sicilia. Sicilia. I'm going to get that wrong. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although that we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy and your justice. And we thank you, Father, for justification for salvation from sins, forgiveness of sins. We thank you that you have come to us and drawn us to us, to, to, drawn us to you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It may seem a bit of an odd place to just take a snapshot. Acts chapter 15 is a pretty good-sized chapter with a variety of different things in it. And I do want to take the next few Sundays of going through those particular points that I did in the introduction sermon last Sunday. Um, and I now have them written down. I apologize that last Sunday I did lose my notes in the beginning of the sermon. But I point out that there were these five S words to be looking for or themes in this particular book. As we think about the foundation of the church, we think about how here, this is more of a, a, an extension of that foundation of the church through the broader church of how it expands out in its encouragement and its, in its shepherding. And I pointed out that here in this particular passage, 
The things that it's focusing on is one, it is definitely focusing on salvation. So we wanted to look at the saving work of God through the church in this particular passage. Secondly, the sending nature of how God sends his people, how he employs his people, he appoints his people, he calls his people to send and to go to each other to encourage each other in that message of salvation. Thirdly, there is the singing, the praising, the rejoicing in what God has done. As they are being sent out to proclaim the salvation, they are speaking of the wondrous works of God, and they're singing His praises and proclaiming and rejoicing what God has accomplished. Fourthly, the one that I forgot last week that took me the whole morning to figure out, is the studying and how when they are going and proclaiming this, you can see that they have been studying God's word, that they're pointing back to things that he has said from the very beginning and the things that he is saying now. These proclamations are not just based upon some kind of encouraging emotional thing for the people to feel good, but to root it in the very promises and proclamation of God's word. So the studying nature of the church. And then lastly, I'm actually changing this. And in your um, order of worship, I have these things listed out in the back. Instead of the solving work of the church, the shepherding work of the church. Somebody, as they had a lot of people brainstorming, trying to help me remember what the word was somebody. One person said spanking. And I thought that was actually a pretty good one. Uh, one of the uh, the positions and places of the church. But we're just going to put that inside of the word shepherding, and so we don't scare too many people away uh, with that right now. Though we may actually need to hear that. But today I'm going to be focusing really on the primary centerpiece of what this is all about, and it is. The saving work of God, the proclamation of the church about the saving work. And so the saving work of God in his church and how that is the primary foundation of the ministry of the church and the broader work of the church. I'm going to ask you a question. I've got a few questions for you today. Um, what is the word doctrine? What does the word doctrine mean? Excuse me. Does it give you warm feelings when you think of the word doctrine? <laughs> Some of you might feel that way. But what does it mean? What does the word doctrine mean? What's that? What we believe. What we believe. Okay, that's good. Definition. The definition of what we believe. Okay. I see in Britannica it says a set of ideas or beliefs that are taught or believed to be true. So there are thoughts, there are ideas, there are beliefs, and there is this teaching and believing and dwelling upon them, and they are to be con- considered to be true. There are things that we may be thinking that are not true. There are stories that we know about that are not true. There are ideas that are not true that may be amusements or entertainments that may be make-believe. But these particular ideas and these particular thoughts are based upon what we would believe or what some people would believe, depending upon what doctrine is being taught, that to be a set of beliefs that are considered to be true. It's important for us to see that in this particular 
a narrative in Acts chapter 15 as we see what the church has looked back on in different facets of the church has looked back on as being the foundation of where we have this system of interactive church operation where there's this organization where churches are sending forth ministers or having representatives come together and to discuss doctrines, to discuss beliefs, to, ha- to work out and wrestle out what is actually true. And then they take that and come back to bring forth one a, a right teaching, a right doctrine to their local congregations, and then therefore a belief that they would hold to be that this is true. It is very common in today's church culture is that we don't really like the word doctrine. But my contention today, in light of this particular passage, is that it is very much the right doctrine that God wants us to have that is what brings us immense and tremendous encouragement. What would you say is the most important question that anyone could ever answer in their whole life? What is the the core question that the answer to this is the most essential answer to all of life? How to be restored to God? Any other articulations of that or different questions? What is our chief end? What is our chief end? Okay. Who is God? That's good. Why are we here? Is Jesus your Savior? All of these can really be merged in together. Who is God? Why are we here? How can we be restored once we understand who God is? Once we understand who God's Son is, can we find reconciliation with this God? Can we find peace with this God? Ultimately, the question is, are you saved? Once we understand the reality of God's righteousness and justice and goodness and the reality of our sinfulness and our vileness, the question that comes upon us is, are we saved from this just God? This God of wrath who will bring forth justice, just as we read in that last statement, that even though he is, was it superbly or supremely? I like that. Supremely merciful. He is supremely just. And so we see both of these attributes of God, and it puts us in this place are we one who will have his mercy? Lastly, as you think about those two particular things, when we think about right doctrine, what doctrine is, and we think about what is the most important question, which is ultimately about our salvation, this is not one for you to answer out loud, but do you feel that day to day, are you troubled? Are you troubled? Are you troubled now? Would you define your mindset and your attitude as being one that dwell upon being troubled? Here we have in this passage that they're communicating to the Gentiles in Antioch. We hear that you are troubled by these people teaching you a particular doctrine and that that doctrine is troubling you. So it may not be so much this question of 
are you troubled? But what troubles you? Because I would venture to say that every one of you run into troubles each day. Some dwell upon them greatly. Some of you dwell upon troubles continually. Some may just fight them, but by the grace of God and his teaching and right doctrine, you may be relieved of your troubles quickly. But I doubt that any of you go through the week by week without facing a battle with what your troubles are. And here, even though this particular passage, as we've already talked about last Sunday, and we'll talk more about specifically today, that this is revolving around the question of circumcision, it still is ultimately the battle of the question of what is it that gives you hope? What will combat your troubles day to day? Do you live your life with the doctrine of salvation in such a way that it helps you face all of your troubles. What doctrine do you believe? What is it that you dwell upon? Is your life, or does your life, I don't know how to say this, is your, is your life defined by your salvation? Are your thoughts defined by the reality of what God has done? what God has promised, and what God has accomplished. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, and also in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, and likewise in the Savoy Declaration of Faith, in chapter 11, section 2, it says that faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is 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 the alone instrument of justification, Yet it is not alone in the persons justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Now, that could be a a sentence that you'd want to chew on for quite some time, but what is unified here in this particular Reformed confession is that our faith, is alone the instrument that brings forth our justification, but that is based upon the receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness. It is ultimately saying that it is Christ and his righteousness that brings us justification. And the instrument of how we receive that and how we rest in that is our faith. Now, our faith is going to be what we believe in what we think, the ideas that are in our head. And I contend that how we live our daily lives in light of that reality, if that reality is true for us, if all of you would raise your hands and say, I agree with that. I agree that my justification, my salvation, is resting on Christ alone in his righteousness. It should have a tremendous impact on us. That it should not be just alone. It should not just be this belief that we have. But there's going to be an impact that will affect saving us in our being, in our thoughts, in our minds, in our bodies, and in our actions being worked out in love. The five solas of the Reformation, which are distinguished, being the Reformers from the teaching of the Roman Catholics, are 
Maybe I should quiz you on that, but we don't have time. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. And Solia Deo, Gloria, glory to God alone. And in this particular passage, all of chapter 15, these things are very much explained and magnified. What this particular sermon today about, in the very first verse we have in chapter 15, it says that, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so that introduction sentence is defining really everything that's going on after this. As we think about the history of the church and the organization of the church, that is the primary question. It is the question that we are to cherish and to defend and to hold. In our prayer time this morning, I opened with Jude, chapter, well, Jude the first chapter, the first paragraph in Jude. And it said that I want to encourage you in our common salvation, but you must be those who are defenders of the faith, that this is something that we're going to need to always protect. It is not something that we are to walk away. The doctrine of our salvation is the essential key point to everything. You all have already confirmed that in your questions or answers to what is that question of life. It all merged together is why are we here? Who is God? What kind of God is he? Who is Jesus? Who are we? How can we be reconciled? How can we be at peace with God. And here in this first sentence, there are these men who are coming down and teaching brothers, people who believe, people who are following after God, Gentiles who are called by God, and they are teaching them that unless you do something, you do something that was mentioned in God's word, you cannot be saved. And so the question is, without any other beating around the bushes, what saves us? And it should be encouraging to us, because there's so much of this, that it's okay to have dissension and debate. That's not always good on how we have dissension and how we have debate, but we see in the very next verse, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with those who were teaching this false doctrine about circumcision. Now, again, I've, I've changed our lectionary readings a little bit because our lectionary, lectionary readings in the church calendar is having us, instead of doing an Old Testament passage right now, it has us doing Acts passages. But since I'm preaching out of Acts, I thought, well, I'll just pick out some Old Testament passages that could help us. Well, I picked out Genesis today. Genesis 17 concerning circumcision. And we saw in that particular passage that God... When he made his covenant with Abraham, and he was making his covenant with Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you a father of a multitude of nations. And guess what? He's talking about these people here. It's a lot about nations. It's a lot about the broadness of nations. And you need to follow me in this covenant by being circumcised, by you and your males being circumcised. 
So this particular doctrine that's being taught here that Paul and Barnabas are contending with is not like some far-fetched idea over in left field somewhere that these guys are teaching. They're bringing forth the word of God and they're saying, listen, Gentiles, for you to be truly saved, you're going to have to be circumcised. Look, Genesis 17. We shouldn't have 17 back then, but they went back there. And so we need to take off any kind of guys that we might have that we might think that this is something that's just completely insane and out there. No, this is something that can have some reasonability to it. These people are preaching from the word. But Paul and Barnabas is saying, you're wrong. And that's why it's important for us to understand context, it's to understand fulfillment, it's to understand who Jesus is and what was going on there. And so they are here to debate and to descend against to make an argument against that, no, it is not that that saved you. And likely in that same argument, it has never been that that actually saves you. But it was that that which always would point to what would save you. And so this doctrine of salvation is, is another word for that, just to be so you can notice if you hear this, because I think I've mentioned this in past sermons. I remember as I first started going to Presbyterian meetings and stuff, I would hear, well, it depends on what your soteriology is. I was like, what is soteriology? What if I don't know what soteriology is? How do I know if I have a good soteriology? Well, soteriology is just simply the doctrine of salvation. It is important that your doctrine of salvation is correct. And that is where we are unified with other Reformed believers in the most cases. That we do fall in the same place that our salvation is based upon and resting in Jesus Christ. Another two terms that is very helpful, and I don't know if this is going to be as helpful for you, and I know I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to bring this up because I just think it's very helpful, is to understand that the argument here really lies down to what is the purpose of circumcision and what it's actually doing. But another way to look at this is whether our doctrine of salvation is monogeristic or synergistic. Because monogerism means that our salvation is based upon one thing, one person. Okay, mono. You know what the word mono means. It means one. Synergistic, what would that possibly mean? Two. At least two, right? A multiple. It would be a synergistic a combination working together. It would be this one working with something else. And we can look at this in the history of the church that is something that's been debated not just here in Acts 15, but it's also been debated amongst those who are a part of the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Church, that they were concluding that it is what Jesus did along with the righteousness that we bring to it. Now, it's a much more complicated conversation than that. But instead of just dwelling on really on either one of those, it is my contention that apart from what's going on here amongst the, the Gentiles in Acts and what's going on with the Roman church or the Eastern church, that we live our lives continually and daily, weekly, fighting this fight out. And I think that is what brings us to being troubled. I think when we think about what is actually troubling us in our lives, the things that really captivate us and worry us, that bring us 
to that dark place where there is tremendous uncertainty and confusion and tremendous pain, it is really ultimately a confusion of whether we believe that our salvation and our calling and our identity and our hope is truly resting in God or if it's partly resting in us or completely resting in us. Now, I want you to think about that. You'll probably have to take that with you, and you might come back to me and say, no, no, and that's fine. We'll talk about it. And I, In probably certain areas that you are troubled, I would probably agree. But I would think the things that really truly haunt us the most when we are faced with troubles is that we are ultimately, at least temporarily, if not continually and cyclically, we are giving in to a synergistic, understanding of who we are and what our hope is. And it causes us to be a society and a culture, both in the church and outside of church, of those who are ridden with tremendous doubt and depression and frustration and angst and bitterness and just general irritation. And I think that if we could see here, one, what it's ultimately saying historically and redemptively and what God has promised, but also to see that the center message of this, of what is actually bearing forth the fruit that would cause them to rejoice, is a conclusive understanding and a right doctrine that our salvation rests solely upon the Lord. In Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 8 through 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a, the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. For God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This fight in this battle, these distinctions of doctrine are foundational for us, for one, because it's a question of whether we are saved or whether we are accursed, whether we are hopeless or people of hope. And so it's important to see here that when Peter stood up and he gave his proclamation, he essentially is saying what Paul said here. He asked those who were Calling people to do this thing, these men who would come and say that you must do these things, in verse 7 it says, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The question that they were trying to answer is, It is necessary for them to do this thing to save themselves ultimately. They were taking the doctrine of what God had given in marking his people, and they were using that as an act that brings forth righteousness. It was never an act of salvation for Abraham, and it is not an act for salvation for the Gentiles here. When God came to Abraham, he told him, I am the God. I am your God. I am going to make you my people. He was declaring to Abraham, I am going to do this. And what Peter says now in verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. They go, he goes back and he says, you're teaching from the word of God. You're teaching the law of Moses. You're teaching the covenant of Abraham. But it is not something that we could have even accomplished then. It is not something that we can accomplish now. That our salvation for us comes from the grace of the Lord Jesus. And it will be the same for the Gentiles. They were bringing the answer to not these acts, not the synergistic act, of you do this and God does this. He's saying, no, it's been from Jesus all along. That is why it is important for us to continue. We've been commanded to do it, as we see in the book of Jude, that we are, to com- we are commanded to, to understand our right doctrine and to defend it and to protect it. Now, again, it's crucial for that purposes, for the sake of our salvation, But notice in this particular passage that it's not just for that particular reason. It is also for his name's sake. James stands stands up and he goes back and he uses this kind of combination because you don't see word for word. But he goes back to the book of Amos. And he also had the reference passage of Jeremiah. He's kind of combining both thoughts, mainly focusing on Amos. But in Amos chapter 9 and verse 12, it says that they may possess the remnant of Edom, that all nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. He's saying two things there. He's talking about how God was going to restore his people, but he's going to restore it with all nations, those same nations that were promised to Abraham. And this is something that God is going to do. And in Jeremiah... He talks about when the light of repentance and a light of restoring his people, he says, I will, Jeremiah chapter 12, he says, I will again have compassion on them. I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass that they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people." But if any nation will not listen, I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. Here he's pointing back, James is pointing out that God has always said that he was going to save a whole people, a whole nations of people. And he will, when he brings the restoration of Israel, he is also going to be bringing people who used to teach God's people to to worship Baal. They too, through their repentance and faith, will be brought in to this restoration that is through the compassion of God. What we see here in this particular passage is that for his name's sake, we see in verse 17 of chapter 15, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. It is for his name, it is by his work, it is by his word, that these things will be accomplished. And so our salvation is not just a saving work, but it's also for the sake of God's glory and the promises of his word. And for his name's sake, we will bear his name. All nations will bear his name. So what's going on here is that as those are coming into the church and are teaching, hey, listen, you're going to have to have a part in this. You're going to have to do something to help bring about your own saving work. What... Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James are doing, they're taking the attention away from 
the actions of the people and saying, no, God has always said this is something he is going to do. From the very beginning, he said this is something he's going to accomplish. He promised us that the Gentiles will be brought in. This is going to be his name, his work, for his glory. Do not steal his glory and leave these people accursed. And that is why when they heard of these stories of God saving his people, they responded with joy. They responded with assurance. And so lastly, the third thing is, is that it's not only just for our salvation, it's not just because of God's glory and his work and his promises, but it is ultimately for the fruit of our joy. And this is what I was saying before, is that do we live our daily lives eating from that fruit of joy, of assurance, of encouragement, that we not only belong to God, but that our only hope is not in of ourselves, but is in God. And we are seeing that being transformed through our lives, that our, everything is being defined in light of God. Or are we struggling each day trying to bring forth some kind of offering to some kind of idea, some kind of doctrine that we have been taught Maybe not just by a group of people, but by a culture of people. Maybe it's been by preachers. Maybe it's even been by me and my preaching whenever I've been in error. Or maybe it's been through conversations of teachings from parents or friends or music or media. Are we believing in some doctrine that is causing us to have a reactive state of mind that brings us to a troubled mind? I would encourage you that if, to, 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 to argue with me on that or, or to question me on that or, or bring forth and say, hey, listen, here's something that, is, that has troubled me for most of my life or something that has been troubling me for the last couple of weeks that I'm just completely brought down by. And I believe that if we walk through that and think about that, and I think if you think about it, are you making conclusions in your mind based upon the reality that it's not in of ourselves that we have any kind of hope of salvation. And it's not just the salvation of our, from, a, from a judgment of eternal death, but our life now. Do you see God saving you from this world of darkness in which we live now, in this world of depression? Listening to Mary's prayer this morning about our nation, it is tremendously depressing. We had this past week, where over nearly half of our senators said, yes, let's codify and solidify that it's okay to kill babies in the womb all the way up to birth. That is a very sad state for our nation. These are people that are not just, we're not talking about just 50 people, we're talking about 50 people who are the representatives of likely half of our country. That is the mindset of the people that we walk around and some go to church with. That's tremendously depressing. Do we, are we left in a place where we do not have an understanding that 
It is not landing there. Our hope is not left there. Our demise is not left there. There is something beyond that, and it has to do with what God is doing and what God has accomplished. We were studying, we're still studying Samuel, the men are, in First Samuel chapter 12, this particular proclamation from God from through Samuel to the people when they had found themselves in sin and realizing that they were really messing up over and over again. I love how Samuel says this in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20. It says, And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. I love that sentence. It's like, he's like, don't be afraid. You're, you're right. You've really screwed up. But that's a nice combination. Go ahead and get that assurance right off the hand. It's like, you're not wrong about what you've done wrong, but don't be afraid. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So let's think about this. So Samuel's encouraging them, both as he's admonishing them to repent for what they've done, to turn away from doing the sinful, stupid things. He's saying, don't, he's not saying turn from that sinful things in your turning and in your repentance, you're going to fix everything. He's not saying that. He's saying, don't be afraid. You have done these wrong things But for his name's sake, it has pleased him to make you a people for himself. This is where I think our problem is when we are troubled is that we are focusing too much on ourselves instead of on him. And therefore, we are often found ourselves captive to being like, well, I don't think I can do this. And so it's pretty much hopeless. So it doesn't really matter what I do. No, it's saying because of what God has said, because of his namesake and what he has accomplished, therefore we should follow him. We should trust in him. We should turn away from the empty things because of what he has done. Verse 23 here says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So it's both saying to us that we need to focus on what God has accomplished, and therefore there should be this reaction of faith, there should be this fruit of faith that will be responding, one, with thanksgiving and joy and rejoicing, worship and adoration and following in obedience, trusting after him. It would be foolish for us to go back to the empty things, the empty way of thinkings, thinking when we believe, if we do believe, that great things have been done for us. Paul reiterates this in Galatians chapter 1, 6 through 10. It says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want 
to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. Anathema. As we have said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He says it twice. For I am now seeking the approval, it says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Jesus Christ. We see here that there is this contrast that those who believe in the work of Jesus Christ, they will at least, I'm not saying that we won't ever have troubles, that we won't ever have to fight the flesh, but we have a place to go with that fight. We have a place to where we can land that should bring us thanksgiving, joy, hope, and should have a fruit of faith of obedience in following him. We wouldn't want to go back to the foolish ways. We wouldn't want to go back to the false doctrines. So I think the message we see here from the response, it doesn't really say it as much in the passage I read in the very beginning here because he tells them more of a shepherding response concerning eating foods given to idols and abstaining from sexual immorality. But it has it implicitly in here in light of what was said earlier in the chapter that the men that they sent was bringing them this message. No, you don't find salvation in what you do. You don't find hope in circumcision. You don't find hope in trying to keep the law. You find hope in the grace of Jesus Christ, like Peter said. And if that is what you believe, which is even a gift of God itself, that faith, that instrument in which brings you to that understanding, then you should know not to participate in the things that are idolatrous and full of sexual immorality. That is what the hope is. It's not turning it upside down. Satan is always taking the word of God from the very beginning. And unfortunately, these same people who are bringing this message to these Gentiles, they were teaching that there's something about you that you have to do to bring forth that hope. This table is reminding us and commanding us to put our hope and our sustenance in the work of Jesus Christ. I encourage you this week, because I can't in just one moment know, you know what all you all are troubled by, but I ask you to take this message in this table, in this proclamation of his hope, and just try, and this is why it's important that we hear these doctrines repetitively, take these very words, the, the whole idea of your salvation, go back and say, what is the most important question? What is my purpose? Who am I in, the, in light of what God has accomplished? How am I saved? What is my hope in? Who is my hope in? Ask those questions when you're facing your whatever trouble it is. It should define, redefine, or identify for you where maybe you're being synergistic in how you're responding to your troubles. You're being... Like the Judaizers, 
You're being like the Roman Catholics. You're being like Satan in the garden with Eve, saying, not that there's not a God, not that God is who he is, but maybe you should consider your own wisdom. Maybe you should consider this thing that you could do that will bring you complete happiness and goodness. And she didn't even need saving. She was in perfection. In perfection. (laughs) So that has always been the battle, is that battle for what is your hope in? Who are you trusting Paul Tripp's, not Paul Tripp, but another pastor friend of mine said, you can summarize all of the scriptures being a message saying, trust me. Not trust me and you. Or not just trust you. But to trust me. To trust Jesus Christ for our hope. That is what this table is for us today. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do not... We cannot and should not, but we do and we will. As soon as we leave here, we'll go back to trusting ourselves in different ways. But Father, we ask that you would continue to conquer over that weakness, conquer over that captivity where we are bound to these lies that our hope is in anything other than your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would be merciful to us. For your name's sake, and for your glory, and for the sake of your people, we pray. Amen. Let us stand, and let us give thanks to the Lord.